Hi, I'm Stella Winston. Welcome to Straight Up. My guest today is Theodore Allen, an his, a historian and a scholar. He's written two books entitled The Invention of the White Race, and the, both of these books represent uh, 30 years of extensive research uh, and exhaustive research. Welcome, uh, Theodore Allen. Well, thank you very much, Mrs. Winston. I'm very happy and honored to be here. Uh, may I call you Ted Allen? Ted, yes. Okay, Ted yes, is fine? Um, okay. Um, fine. Good. Um, you were in uh, Washington this past weekend. So please tell us, what was it like? Yes, it was on Saturday. I was with the largest of three groups. It was the one organized by the National Action uh, Network. So were you there to uh, celebrate the inauguration or to protest the inauguration? Uh, I was more on the protest side. Like we carried signs saying, Hail to the Thief, uh, rather than, as you may have heard. And uh, in the, uh, the addresses and in the uh, among the speakers, frequent attention was given to the uh, uh, base role that the Supreme Court had played in awarding by selection the presidency to Bush. And uh, particular emphasis was given to the means uh, by which uh, African Americans and Haitians in Florida, as well as in other parts of the country, were disfranchised. Okay. Now, you've uh, resided in Brooklyn for some 40 years, but where are you from originally? I was born in Indiana and lived there until I was 10 years old. After the rest of my uh, time uh, be uh, before coming to New York was uh, spent in uh, Appalachia, in Kentucky and West Virginia. Now, uh, you... You've had a number of occupations. You were a coal miner, a clerk, and a math teacher. How did you become uh, to be a, an, a, a historian? Since I was four years old, I've always been interested in the study of history. That interest was whetted as my great uncle, Billy McCune, taught me Marching Through Georgia, the song he had sung in the Civil War as a young soldier in George Thomas Army. Do you, do you remember the song? How oh, yes. How'd well, it go? parts of it. It's well known. Hurrah, hurrah, we'll sing the Jubilee. Hurrah, hurrah, the sound that makes us free. And so we sing the chorus from Atlantic to the sea as we go marching through Georgia. <laughs> So he was responsible for... Well, uh, he, I remember him, okay. and uh, not very many people that I know have any connection with anybody who fought in the Civil War, uh, I mean, had while they were still living, and uh, I remember him. Now, you're uh, Anglo-American, European descent, mm -hmm. and you live in, we live in the same neighborhood. And the neighborhood is predominantly African-American. And what, what type of reactions have you received? Well, once in a while, a white cab driver or service person or other such stranger operating on the assumption of the supposed kinship among European-Americans as whites has inquired how long I have been living there. 
it is my custom to reply, I see you think I'm white. That usually leads them to another approach. Other than such instances, my experience, my experiences have been neighborly and normal. Okay. Some of my neighbors have bought my book. If I must be categorized demographically, I am a European-American, more particularly an Anglo-American, but I am not white. I resigned from the white race some long time ago. Which brings us to both your books. They're both titled The Invention of the White Race. Why did you name them both The Invention of the White Race? Well, I wanted to stress that my re regarding the white race as not a anthropological phenomenon, but as a social phenomenon, an historical phenomenon, and uh, I wanted to indicate further that it didn't just happen, but that it was deliberately formed. And that's why I use the term invention. And, and, and Because invention means that it was created to do a certain function. Yes. And uh, now both of them are named the invention of the white race, but each one has a different subtitle. subtitle. Yes. Volume one is Invention of the White Race, uh, Racial Oppression and Social Control, in which... You know, that's volume one, in which I uh, uh, give a definition of racial oppression independent of phenotype appearance, the way people appear, and took the case of the Irish uh, under the English in the early uh, occupation in the 13th century, and then later in the 17th and 18th century, particularly the 18th century, under the penal laws, to illustrate a case of racial oppression which was not connected with phenotype because you, uh, between the English and the Irish there was no phenotypical appearance or differences uh, physically. So uh, what, from what I understand, your premise is that racism is a unique result of the slavery on continental uh, America and that the use of white wasn't used until sometime in the 17th century. I think that's what I got from, from your book. And that there's a particular uh, rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion that was significant um, to the invention of, of this uh, so-called white race. Well, uh, you're touching on several points. So, yeah. uh, and uh, Well, what was Bacon's Rebellion? Why, why do you place so much significance? On well, Bacon's Rebellion, uh, Bacon's rebellion uh, was uh, started out as an anti-Indian war, but became a revolt of the bondleggers, European American and African American, and the poor farmers who had no land. They'd been formerly bond servants and got freed, and but still didn't have any good land, and they joined uh, uh, together in this rebellion against the colony elites and demanding uh, land redistribution and so on. And uh, the thing that makes it uh, historically significant 
is that African-American and European-American bond leaders joined together in this uh, rebellion. It was uh, side by in, side. En, en masse, uh, en masse, uh, uh, large numbers together, and fighting against their oppression for their freedom and for distribution of land. And uh, that is historically significant because not only has it not been done again in these nearly 400 years, 400 years, but uh, it is significant because it shows that there was no white race at that time. The white race has to be monolithic or it's nothing. If the white race, if the European Americans, who are the ones who become white, split on this issue of equal rights or joining together with African Americans, then that's the end of the white race. And so I say this indicates that that's one indication, the most dramatic indication that it was not, uh, that the white race did not then exist. Okay, well, Mr. Allen, uh, we're going to take a break, okay, and uh, we'll be uh, back in okay. a few minutes. All right. Okay. Back. I'm talking with uh, Mr. Theodore W. Allen. He is a historian and independent scholar and author, and he has uh, authored two books, um, both entitled The Invention of the White Race, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And uh, we were talking about Bacon's Rebellion. Now, I have here a copy of what you, what you consider the Rosetta Stone of uh, American history. Now, the Rosetta Stone was, uh, to uh, archaeologists, was the key to uh, deciphering hieroglyphics. Now, why do you consider this particular document? Now, this, the name of this document is called Captain Thomas Grantham's Account of His Experience with Bacon's Rebellion from uh, the 21st of November, 1676, to just after uh, the 2nd of January, 1677. Why is this the Rosetta Stone? Well, the, the application of this term to it is my own. I don't know anybody else used that term, but I consider it significant because it is a key to a reinterpretation of United States history. Because take the white race out of United States history to be a different thing. But how did it get in there? And this indicates uh, that it was not due to some hereditary affinity of English or European-Americans, because obviously they were joined together with African-Americans in a fight for their freedom from their bondage. And so uh, if that is established, then from then on, you have to explain, well, how did the white race come into being and how has it what was its purpose? Okay, well, let's just read the uh, key points that you have here, and then we'll go to that, that question. And uh, it should come up on the uh, monitor for our viewing audience. And you have just t two parts highlighted. It says, the 2nd of January at night, Ingram and some of his chief officers made a surrender 
of West Point to me. I went to the Colonel's West House about three miles farther, which was their chief garrison and magazine. I there met about 400 English and Negroes in arms who were much dissatisfied at the surrender of the point, saying I had betrayed them and thereupon some were for shooting me and others for cutting me into pieces. I told them that I would willingly surrender myself to them till they were satisfied from his majesty and did engage to the Negroes and servants that they were all pardoned and freed from their slavery. Yes, well, that shows there was no white race. I mean, and that's all there testifies to it. And reading that leads to the question, well, how then and when did the white race come into being? And what purpose, for what purpose was it brought into being? Well, how did, how did it change? How did it come about? How was it invented? Well, I define racial oppression as a system under which the least, most degraded member of the oppressor group is exalted over any member of the oppressed group, however educated or wealthy. And uh, what this came about in my argument here, that in that the ruling class uh, was faced with a mass of dissatisfied, armed, poor people who made this rebellion and they were put down, but they were still armed and they still dissatisfied and uh, had to be, uh, so they cast about for some means of maintaining social control. Now, in the first volume, you, uh, you give a lot of attention to Irish his history and Irish American history. What relevance does that have to racial oppression? Well, I, I treat the British uh, rule in Ireland in the early period, the 13th century, the 1200s, and then again after the Reformation, the 1560s, until, uh, uh, and then most intensely after a couple of wars, in the 18th century, the regime called Protestant Ascendancy. Protestant Ascendancy is like white supremacy. Under that law, uh, no Irish, the Catholic, no Irish Catholic could uh, own land, could uh, purchase, achieve, uh, uh, purchase land, could not rent for long periods of time, could not practice as a lawyer, and, and of course, you could not vote mm -hmm. and uh, was uh, uh, deprived of the elementary rights of Englishmen. Now, and all of them, not just the working uh, Catholics, you know, laboring class Catholics, but all Catholics of whatever class. So are uh, you saying that they took this type of oppression and they applied it to the African uh, Africans that were enslaved here? Well, what I'm saying is... That, uh, they overlap some, uh, uh, well, particularly in the 18th century. And in the, the colonies in Virginia, 
in uh, a law was passed in 1723 that Negroes, Indians, and Catholics, Irish, Irish Catholics, could not have the franchise. They couldn't vote. And uh, there were, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a thing that indicates the kinship of the two systems. Uh, and, uh, but uh, in the continental colonies, in uh, plantation colonies, Virginia and Maryland, where they started, uh, the motive for it didn't depend upon what had happened in Ireland. They, here they were, just as in Ireland, they were confronted with the pro problem of social control, and so they used a Protestant versus Catholic system. Here, to maintain Protestant, uh, maintain social control, the ruling class here, the plantation bourgeoisie, uh, uh, established a rule in which they sought to enlist all European Americans as whites in the system of control, even though they themselves were poor and downtrodden themselves. Now, in your second volume, I think the point is driven home uh, uh, even more so about how the systems of oppression were different between the uh, uh, the slavery in the British West Indies and the slavery on uh, continental America. And I think maybe an explanation uh, would help explain the difference in the racial oppression there compared to here. Yes, that's a very, very important aspect uh, of uh, this uh, treatment of the subjects because uh, it, if it is said that, well, as some historians apparently assume or say, well, there's a natural tendency of the whites to dominate, right? Yeah, but now in the West Indies, it had something to do with the numbers, right? Yes. they In the West Indies, in, in a characteristic of the United States, uh, Anglo-America, continental Anglo-America, was the denial of social mobility to African-Americans, free African-Americans, uh, not just bond laborers, but the free African-Americans were denied uh, the rights of citizens. And at one time in Virginia in 1693, I think it was, they passed a law saying uh, the free Negroes, persons who free Negroes must pay for their transportation out of the colony. In other words, to keep down free Negroes as well as bond laborers. So if, in the Americas, if you if you had one ounce of African blood, you were considered African-American, yeah. and you could not move up the social ladder because of the African blood that flowed through your, brain, yeah. your, your, your veins. But in the yeah. British West Indies... Yeah, now that was... And in, in the West Indies, after a certain period, almost beginning uh, even before the 18th century, the ruling class there, the British ruling class, was recruiting some persons of one degree or another of African ancestry into the middle strata, in the militia, and, and uh, in the uh, petty trades, and they became uh, important uh, 
uh, in the merchandising of, you know, not of the sugar crop, but of other things. And, uh, uh, and they became landowners and they became owners of bond laborers themselves. So they were allowed to move up the social yes, they chain. Were, they, yes, they had to allow that because there was no way of controlling the Negroes, as they said it. And, and this is formulated in my book. I mean, I have a pages where I cite several of the English authors who say we need to promote the mulatto and some blacks to uh, an intermediate strata so they will be on our side, on the side of the whites. Mm -hmm. And that works pretty well uh, for uh, a long time. And the heritage of it is seen today in Europe, uh, West Indian immigrants who have come here already experienced in functioning in the petty bourgeois strata of society, whereas in the United States, that was considered an affront to the poor whites to have a Negro uh, be a merchant or be a, a supervisor or anything of that sort. And But there, the difference is this that in the West Indies, the British West Indies, there were too few European-Americans to recruit the sufficient middle-class, intermediate social control stratum, whereas in continental Anglo-American colonies, Virginia, Maryland, elsewhere, there were too many European-Americans to be recruited into that right, so class, so they promoted them to what? The white race. race. So the white race is particularly unique to continental uh, slavery as yeah. opposed to the British uh, West Indies uh, slavery. Now, is, what hope do you have uh, for anyone who reads your book? What is, what is your hope? Um, how would they take something like this and uh, use it in their lives today? How, how would well, I would hope first that any reader will read critically. You know, and test what is said there. Well, does it hang together? You know? Yes, and it is. Uh, it is uh, very well documented. I must yeah, say. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, footnotes, and I think, and some of them are uh, substantive, not, and they need uh, to be given attention. Uh, so read it critically, and then I hope that it may be found a contribution to strengthening the struggle in, uh, against white supremacy. Okay.